this is ContraZoom. Where we go back and forth about film. I'm Dakota Arsenault. And I'm Rachel Ho. Rachel, I cannot believe it. We are here at our 200th episode. Back when the show started seven years ago, I barely managed to publish two shows a month, sometimes taking long hiatuses as I struggled to come up with ideas and get a good workflow down. A few years ago, when I was briefly uh, aligned with Aesthetic Magazine, I fully committed to a bi-weekly format. It wasn't until after you joined the show that we really nailed down the once-a-week format. It took five years to hit the first 100 shows, but only two years to get to the second 100. But Mm -hmm. I want to thank everyone who listened, who has been involved with the show, and is certainly not a one- or two-person operation, as I'm sure you can attest to. But if you want to learn the whole history of the podcast, the best place to start is the bonus episode, Better Know Contributor, where you interviewed me a few months ago, which I'll link to in the show notes. I figured you can get to know us just a little bit more with a fun episode where we decide to name our five films that help shape who we are as movie watchers. From our earliest movie memories to the first time we noticed the craft of a movie that made us want to spend all of our days talking about them. Uh, And also, along the way, we have some friends who want to share their picks for a movie that made them via voicemail. So, all that said, Rachel, how did you approach your list? First of all, congratulations. I think 200 is a great accomplishment. And also, I think it's pretty cool that first, did you say five years it took you to get to 100 and then two to get to 200? That's pretty sweet. So, um, yeah, (laughs) congratulations. Well done. Uh, in terms of how I went about my list, so I lifted this idea from many other things that I've seen online, like Ali Plum over at BBC One, uh, Radio One, he does a series called like Movies That Made Us. Um, and I think Cinefix, I think they did a list um, a while back, the writer who did a list. And so I kind of took the same approach that they did, which is just like five movies that meant a lot to me at different points of my life or five movies that or not all five but or some movies that I just kind of look back on with a lot of fondness for a particular period of time in my life how about you was that about the same as you you gave me the idea of pivotal moments you said yeah I think I think that helped sort of contextualize the list mm-hmm. because then, like, I didn't include something like the first movie I saw in theaters, which I'm I'm pretty sure was Aladdin. Like, I've I've zero recollection of that. I know my yeah, mom I likes don't to talk fondly either. about you know how I was so captivated watching. <laughs> I didn't cry, I didn't fuss, or whatever when I was you know three years old or whatever I was when I saw that movie. But I don't remember that. I have no real memories, and I don't think that really helped shape me as a movie watcher that I am today. So. It, re- it really was basically just sort of pivotal moments of like, uh, did it, was there a light bulb moment for me when I watched it? What, what, what did that movie trigger in me that sort of set me off the path that I am at today? And it would be easy to just be like, oh, these are my top five favorite movies of all time because they're my favorite movies because they obviously were very impactful and they meant a lot. But, uh, but they're not, you know, I would say looking at my list, probably, Probably only one movie I would say would be in my top five all time. Would you, is yours sort of similar or, or what? Mm. Yeah. One of them would definitely be probably my all time. Maybe two, actually, I'd probably be pushing two. Um, but yeah, I think I did the same. It's not necessarily my favorite movies. I think you and I could probably list if we were to each pick like our five favorite movies, we probably would have done that. So there will probably be movies that are missing that 
seem odd to be missing in a way because of how much maybe we've talked about them in previous episodes or whatever. For me, anyways, I shouldn't speak for you. Um, but yeah, I, they're, they're not necessarily, yeah, my favorite, favorite movies, although they are movies that I really do enjoy. But some of them actually I haven't seen in years. Yeah. Uh, and I think to go back to sort of the favorite things, you know, both of us on our There Are No Contributor episodes that we did, we both kind of listed mm-hmm. our favorite movies. So it's not really much of a surprise. And also, if you listen to like the last episode, the best films by genre that I did with Bill or the one the previous two years, the uh, best films by decade and best film for every year that I've been alive, you would really kind of get to know what movies I, I frequently cite as my favorites. And I feel like you on enough shows have kind of uh, listed which movies have been your favorites, whether currently or throughout your life sort of thing. Definitely. And speaking of that episode, I should note that Bill, if you're listening, I am not too cool to hang out with you. I should also note Dakota and I have hung out before. So do with that what you will, that I am definitely not too cool to hang out with you, Bill. Yeah, and I'm nowhere near as cool as you, Bill. That was with a lot of sincerity that you said that with. <laughs> he is going to love that, and I cannot <laughs> wait uh, for the direct message he's going to send me about this now. <laughs> <laughs> because he really does message me after almost every show, usually with some snide comment. But like I said on the last show, it really just means that he's listening, so I'm happy. <laughs> You're just grasping at straws. <laughs> you're just like, really man, you're listening. This is great. This is excellent. <laughs> well, shall we get started, Rachel, in our lists? Absolutely. All right. So we're going to start off uh, with our first clip. We're going to alternate between you and I, but in between them, we've got five clips, which is perfect because we each got five movies, so it works out great. So the first one we're going to hear from is friend of the show, Brody Cottenham. Hey, guys. It's Brody. So much like yourselves, I grew up in the era of Jurassic Park and a lot of the Disney stuff. So that had a huge impact on me as well as things like Ghostbusters and The Godfather, which I still think is the best movie ever made. But another film that really, really stuck with me and I kind of wanted to go in a different direction since I'm sure you guys will mention those other ones is the original Halloween Uh, I remember watching it as a kid and it's one of those things where you still vividly remember the first time you watched it and just the feeling that you had after you watched it, that it stuck with you and shaped your mind in a way that you was so different than other movies you'd seen and you enjoyed it, but you weren't necessarily sure what it was just because it's frankly, it scared the hell out of me as a kid, but I really, really enjoyed it and I'll never forget how much it stuck with you. Thanks guys. Always enjoy the show. Take care. So now we have back-to-back shows with Halloween being mentioned because last week Bill named that as one of his favorite films by genre for horror, obviously. I still have not seen Halloween, as I talked about last week. Uh, Are you a fan of this movie? Uh, I like it. I'm not, I don't think I'm as big of a fan of it as Brody or yeah, as Brody and as, and as Bill, but it's a good movie. Like I, I, I don't think I've seen it beyond the first time I watched it. I'll be honest, the slasher stuff, apart from Scream and those kind of like the 90s ones, not the like, I, I don't have a lot of rewatch that I don't see a lot of rewatch value in them. Um, oh, interesting. But, I know pe- but people really love them, though. Like, they really, well, I, really love them. disappointing Brody right now. I know. I'm sorry, Brody. But it is a great pick, though, like, especially for someone who's as into horror as he is. Like, mm-hmm. I can understand why it would be um, like probably one of the most 
legendary, most well-known horror films, uh, especially like contemporarily speaking. Absolutely. But uh, what is uh, what is your first pick, Rachel? So I went with, or I'm going to start with a movie like this one I kind of struggled with, which sounds really silly to struggle with it because I was trying to find something from like my childhood, like the movie that defines kind of the earliest memories of film, like you were saying at the top. And I was trying to be really clever and think of like different types of movies. And you just come back to it. And Lion King is the one like Lion King. If you're of a certain age, if you're born in the late mid to late eighties, Lion King came out at kind of the perfect time. And it was one of the saddest movies that you've, that you saw as a child because Mufasa dies, spoiler alert. Um, But it was also just one that it brings a lot of joy and as we get, as we've gotten older, it's kind of like a movie that definitely became a very, how should I put this? Kind of like a, like a, like a jewel in the Disney crown, especially for that time when Disney was turning out some, some pretty great stuff. Uh, Lion King for me was always the movie that stood out. And it's the one I look back on fondly the most. And it's the one that's like, it makes you feel a lot of things, but there was a lot of great music. The animation is beautiful. The voice acting, even though I don't think as a child I was registering like, oh, wow, Jonathan Taylor Thomas made a great Simba. Like, I didn't think of it that way. But it's just they're all very earnest in their portrayals. And then now when I look back and I think like, God, they had somebody like Jeremy Irons playing um, Scar. They had like James Earl Jones being Mufasa. That's incredible. Uh, And then before we came on here, I was talking about how I just went to Stratford um, over the weekend. and I saw Hamlet. And this movie obviously takes a lot of story from Hamlet and it's a great introduction almost to classical literature um, as classical as you could possibly get. So yeah, I'm going to go with Lion King as my very first one. Cause I don't know if there's a movie that I enjoyed more as a child. Um, and also too, just kind of like on a broader scheme, I know this is supposed to be movies that define us individually. Um, but it's also just one for anybody in our generation. That was a huge, huge movie for everyone. Nice. That's a, that's a fantastic pick. That was Probably my favorite movie as a as a kid growing up. I literally wore out the cassette listening to the soundtrack so much. It was so, so good. good. It was yeah. so good. Everything about it is so good. Like I can't I can't fault it for anything. That movie. It's funny. I uh, sorry, a, a bit of an adjacent story here. Uh, a few years ago, I think it was 2015. I went to a festival and Elton John was playing. And a lot of the chatter beforehand was people really hoping that he like customized his set because the crowd was so much at the time I was in my mid to late twenties of people mostly in the like mid twenties to early thirties who grew up on stuff like his Lion King work. And we're mm-hmm. really hoping that he would perform some songs from his Disney era. And he unfortunately did not. I know that was a no. bit of a disappointment. He still put on a fantastic set. But uh, but it was just like, man, it would be really cool if he played some of his Disney songs because, like, all of us in the crowd were that age that, like, yeah. grew up idolizing those songs. I wonder if he has, like, I don't, did you have you ever seen him perform otherwise? Like, or is no. that the only time? But I wonder if maybe, you know, sometimes they kind of, some singers are, like, in the sense of, I'm trying to say, like, some singers are a bit funny about which songs they play and maybe he doesn't really look at, because this is his music it's kind of like a soundtrack like a he was kind of like a gun for hire in a sense rather than i created my own songs but like it does mean a lot to us though but um 
In the same vein, though, I saw Hans Zimmer when he was doing a tour around, I think he did a world tour, actually. Mm -hmm. And he came to Toronto, and my friend and I went to go watch it. And he did do um, Lion King music, of course. Uh, And, like, everyone was so jacked for it. Like, once you hear those, it was, I think it was, what did he start with? It must have been the Circle of Life he started with that. And there was, like, a really cool video in the back of showing different clips. And when that, when the sunset came up, onto the screen like everybody <laughs> just lost their mind it was unbelievable <laughs> it's fun. at a Hans I, Zimmer concert I've really wanted to see Hans Zimmer and lately I know Danny Elfman has been doing lots of shows too mm, doing yeah. his score work and I imagine with with both of those guys when depending on what movie they're playing you could definitely tell uh what age the majority of the yeah. crowd is by what they cheer for yeah definitely yeah it's fun though I I love watching those composers come around because yeah it's really cool well, my first pick, uh, I talked about it in uh, the Barano Contributor episode, and it's kind of a tie because I can't remember which one came first, and it is The Birds in North by Northwest. And mm. so this pick is is cheating a bit. Uh, I talked about before, as I said, but those were probably the first adult movies I remember watching. And I just remember after seeing one of them, I knew I had to see more of whoever this Alfred Hitchcock was. I was probably nine ten years old something like that and i was so curious and and this was like the internet wasn't really a thing i think there was probably dial up back then uh but it's not like today where you just be like oh i like this movie who directed alfred hitchcock okay let me just see what else they directed oh they just blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and you could see everything that they've ever done their entire life story and all that sort of stuff it wasn't really like that uh my mom was borrowing the movies from the library they're obviously on vhs and it was it was just being like, oh, my mom told me this, you know, was Alfred Hitchcock. So what's another Alfred Hitchcock one that the library has? Because they obviously would would be able to look it up alphabetically and things like that. And be like, oh, okay, yes, in this one. And I just remember her being like, we're not watching Psycho. She had watched it when she was, you know, when it first came out of theaters and she was a young woman. And it was too scary for her, which, you know, goes back to our Cronenberg episode talking about me not watching horror. <laughs> Um, and so I think the birds was probably about the scariest that she would allow me to watch. So it's, it's kind of funny, but that's how it all sort of came back. And the first time I remember like actively knowing who a director was or who the main creative force behind a movie was, I was nine or 10 and I probably wouldn't have clocked anyone else for several more years after that. But for some reason I knew who he was. He is one of those names that I think you hear about it before you really understand who he was and what he means to cinema it's just like it's just like a name you know like kind of like if you don't follow a certain sport but you still know who like if you don't follow hockey you probably still know who Wayne Gretzky is to some extent mm-hmm. it's kind of like that like he's just um like his name goes his name is beyond his reputation in many ways um which says a lot about his reputation really um, yeah, I, I, it's a little curious because it would have been the late 90s mm-hmm. and I obviously didn't come up with him. So it's not like Alfred Hitchcock was a name in the public consciousness that I would have heard. Like if you were, you know, in the live in the 90s and 2000s, you knew who Wayne Gretzky was by osmosis. Like you'd see yeah, him on late yeah. night TV or clips on the news or, you know, cereal boxes, things like that. You'd be like, oh, I have a vague idea of who this person is. What Especially this in Canada. Looks like. Yeah. yeah. With with Hitchcock, it's just so weird. We're like, how did I how did yeah. I know that name? What what was it that my mom thought that I would enjoy? I'm pretty sure North by Northwest would have came first because it wasn't scary at all. So she mm-hmm. probably eased me into it that way. Like why? Why that one? Why? That's interesting. 
Like I just, I, it, it's kind of, I wonder if it's maybe the idea of, you know, young kids today, like digging into, although it's, it's different because Hitchcock obviously passed away long before um, the late nineties. Uh, but I was thinking like, it kind of like, you know, kids digging into old Spielberg stuff now and being like, who's this mm. guy? But then he's yeah. still working. So it's not exactly the same. Um, I do want to flag. I feel like this is the beginning of your list being very highbrow and like <laughs> cinephile and mine just being things that were in the movie theater, which I also thought the same when you and Bill were doing your list. I was like, man, you guys were choosing like the most sophisticated films for like comedy. And I was like, mine would have just been dumb and dumber. Like that's 100% <laughs> what I would have picked. But anyways, I, yeah. So. I don't know. What we do in the shadows is that highbrow, is it? I mean, like, if you said to just, like, the average person on the street, like, what's your what's your favorite comedy? Especially for people our age, it probably would be some sort of Jim Carrey yeah. movie or, right. like, some, or maybe, like, a Mike Myers, if, if that's your taste. Um, but, yeah, I don't know how many people would have chose those ones. But yeah, I enjoyed right. them. I enjoyed <laughs> them, though. I thought they were good. All right. So we're going to move on and hear our second clip. And it is from friend of the show, Matthew Simpson. Hey friends, this is Matthew from the Awesome Friday Podcast. When Dakota contacted me to ask about the movies that made us, I could think of only one movie and one scene to talk about. In the summer of 1993, just a few days before my 12th birthday, my dad took me to the movies to see a film that I was very excited about. In an early scene of this film, there are two jeeps crossing a grassy plain, and they come to a halt as one of the drivers has seen something. A rugged-looking man in the back of one of them stands and takes off his glasses with a look of disbelief on his face. A young scientist is speaking confusedly about a plant that doesn't make sense, until he turns her head and she rises in shock, also unable to believe her eyes. Then, accompanied by John Williams' now classic score, we see it too, a full-grown brachiosaur grazing in the trees. This was a defining moment in my history as a movie lover because this was the moment that made me believe in the magic of movies. This was a real-life dinosaur, on screen. This was the moment that helped me find, as Tommy Lee Jones once put it, the gleeful suspension of my disbelief. It's a perfect cinematic moment, both as a turning point for the use of CG in film, but also as a wonderfully performed scene between a dumbfounded Sam Neill and Laura Dern and the childlike giddiness of Sir Richard Attenborough. It's not an exaggeration to say that it blew my 11-year-old mind, nor that to this day it never fails to give me goosebumps. So there we go. We've got Matthew's pick for Jurassic Park. I think it's a great one and a very formative pick for a lot of people from our generation. 100%. And like Brody mentioned it a bit as well, because I know he really likes that movie. And I think it just shows that movie. It's I find it a bit of a shame that young people today, when they think of Jurassic Park, they're thinking of the um, the Jurassic World series, like the Chris Pratt, Bryce, Ugh. Alice Howard. I know. But that's like, that's their Jurassic Park, whereas ours is the good one. Um, and it is that scene that Matthew so eloquently and beautifully described is that was like everything. I think when you're a kid and you see that because we grow up like one of the first things you learn in school, like the big units I always remember learning was about dinosaurs. And it's just such a like it's prehistoric. Like there's no written documentation about the dinosaurs when they were alive, obviously. And it's, it's like they they seem almost kind of magical in a sense. And then to see a movie like Jurassic Park that brings it all to life, 
magical is the best word that and i think matthew hit the nail on the head on that one because of that yeah that movie's incredible and like you said i don't think there's anybody who grew up in our generation who didn't absolutely love that movie Mm -hmm. well what is your second pick then rachel i went for something that i have a very vivid memory of watching with my friend ria and it was the skulls do you remember the skulls from 2000? I do. I've never seen it, but yeah. You've never seen it. So it's um, Joshua Jackson and Paul Walker. And I remember watching this movie in like a really kind of, it was, we had two local theaters um, where I grew up and this was kind of the more rundownish one. The other one was a famous players. So that was like the more branded one. And then this was a bit more of a, I think a locally owned one. And I just remember watching it and it was one of the first movies that I got really lost into. And I probably would have been about 12, 13 years old at the time. And I just got completely lost in the movie. Like there was something about the skulls and like the secret society business that I just fell in love with. And it was just something that I, I like, I wanted to be a part of it. Like I wanted to be in the movie. I wanted to be with them. I wanted to be buddies with Joshua Jackson and Paul Walker. I wanted to like, be a part of this whole thing including the duel at the very end it's great it's and like i watched the movie recently uh maybe about a year ago during during lockdown i watched it and it's not as good as i remember i'll be clear about that but it's still Mm -hmm. a lot of fun and there are other movies that i remember came out um that i remember watching that kind of had a similar effect it was like disturbing behavior which was a katie holmes movie and it was kind of her like dark period because dawson's creek she was such a a perky Joey. And, and now she was like this dark Gothic kind of girl and disturbing behavior. And then the other was another Paul Walker movie, which was fast and the furious. Um, all those movies, like there was something about the kind of the darker world of it that just really intrigued me. And I, it was just my, my earliest time of thinking of being so absorbed and so um, entrenched into a movie's world, not to say that those are like the best made movies in the world, but they just really captured my imagination when I was, 13 14 years old whatever that's a movie that i vividly remember always passing in blockbuster (laughs) and seeing the cover and always being so intrigued by and to this day every time i still see it i'm always like hmm maybe i should watch the skulls that does kind of sound a little interesting uh it's fun like it is fun yeah you're not really selling it as holding up though (laughs) because it's okay it's not it's not the greatest film in the world and there are moments that you're just like this is so silly but it's really really fun and like and i think if you take it just it really does exemplify what kind of teen movies were coming out at the time Mm -hmm. um and so they don't most of those movies didn't really hold up but it they're fun and and like also it just started my massive love affair with paul walker um, that was the first movie that I remember seeing him in and being like, that's a handsome fellow on there. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it was, it, it's, it's, I would recommend it to anybody to watch, but also like keeping in context what the era that the movie came out in mm-hmm. and the fact that like it was directed towards my age group at that time. Like, so 12, 13, preteen, early teenage years. So it's not like the most sophisticated thing in the world, which I'm sure will be your next pick will be like a really, I don't know something by Fellini or something like that. But um, <laughs> it's, you know, but like the skulls is, is classic and it's, it's great. It's not classic in the classic sense, but it's classic for like our age group. I feel like. Well, good to know. And I feel like my next pick is probably my, my least uh, highbrow one. Uh, <laughs> so ho- hopefully you don't make fun of it too much, uh, but it's Shawshank Redemption. 
So hey, that's a good one. That's a good <laughs> I one. remember I watched this early on in high school at home. And I just remember being blown away by the concept of a surprise ending. And I know it's not like the ending is the actual surprise, but there's like that big twist towards the mm-hmm. third act. Spoiler alert for literally who hasn't seen Shawshank Redemption now. But the point when, you know, uh, when the warden goes to the prison cell and he's no longer there and he gets angry. So he picks up some rocks and he throws them on the wall and it breaks through the Rita Hayward poster on his wall and they pull it down. They're like, what? What is this tunnel? And then we get like the flashback of how he managed to dig his way out of prison and escape and all that sort of stuff. It just like blew my mind of being like, Oh my Mm -hmm. God, movies can surprise you in ways that you could not even think were possible. But then, so you have that aspect of it. But then the second part of it was in, when I was at school, uh, one of my drama teachers decided to show it to us in class. But before he did, he said, hey, has anyone in this class seen Shawshank Redemption? So this would have been uh, 2005 or so, something like that. And I think only like four of us put our hands up. And so it was like, you know, it's 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 fine. You think back and you're like, who hasn't seen Shawshank Redemption? But like when you're in high school, there's an entire world of of movies, of art, of music that you just haven't heard yet because you really need the time to be able to go through step by step to, to see it all. Like, it's funny when I talk to someone like uh, Royce when he comes on the show and he's seen a lot of movies, but he also has huge swaths of blind spots that he hasn't seen yet because, you know, he's over a decade younger than me. In that decade, I've been able to catch up on a lot of things that I've wanted to. So at the time, it wasn't too shocking that four people in the class hadn't had only seen Shawshank and he goes, OK, uh, well, if you know the movie's title in French, it kind of gives the movie away, but I'll tell the class afterwards. And so after that class was over, before he had shown the movie, I went up to the teacher. I was like, hey, so uh, what's, what's the French title? And he says, the translation from French to English is The Prison Break which gives the entire movie away. And you're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. But it was like the, just the first time being shown a movie, being like, hey, we're going to critically analyze this movie in a movie that I had already seen. So it made me kind of feel like a bit ahead of the curve and sort of know what to anticipate and just being able to be like, hey, a movie I watch for entertainment, you can also look at it through a critical lens. I was really hoping you were going to do the French, like the actual French title. not The, the Prison Break. <laughs> Le Break to Prison. Um, <laughs> uh, that's excellent pick. I love that movie. I remember, um, I actually do have like a story about that too. I was in grade six and I, my grade six teacher, Mr. Hayes, he was really into movies and really into books. And he would try to like shoehorn it into kind of everything that we did. But like for grade six curriculum, there's not much. I don't know. It wasn't really, we weren't doing like film analysis or anything like that. And one day in class, I don't know why he did this, but he basically described the entire plot of Shawshank Redemption. Maybe he'd just seen it or something and he was really just into it. And he talks specifically about um, when Dufresne comes out and like his shoes, like that was the one thing that he couldn't change was like, he had these black dress shoes on as he walked through uh, the prison, uh, the jail, and in hoping that nobody would notice it. And I always remembered his description of the movie. And I didn't, I actually couldn't remember the name of the movie, but he just described this story to us. And we were all really captivated by it because it's a fascinating story. Like it's, it's a uh, Stephen King. So it's like, you know, it's going to be good. 
And then I think a few years later, I saw it on TBS. And as the movie was going on, on like Superstation, as it's going on, I'm like, this is the movie that Mr. Hayes was talking to us about. And so I knew the entire, (laughs) I knew what the entire film was going to be. But I remember watching it and just being like, oh, shit, like, this is a really good movie. No wonder Mr. Hayes kept talking about this in class. Um, so I always think about that when I think of Shawshank Redemption, because it's it's a great movie. It's like storytelling done to near perfection. I think actually mm-hmm. perfection, because I can't really mm-hmm. think of something I would change from it. Yeah, it's a, it's a great populist movie. And I mean that in a very in a very positive way, because so mm-hmm. often movies that are meant for large audiences are just not good. Yeah. And because they're just like, oh, just going to pack in, you know, either explosions or, or comedy or whatever. But this, you know, had all the beats that you needed to make a good movie. And it was for popular audiences. Definitely. And like, I, like, I mean, this exactly what you're saying. It's like, who wouldn't like, like, I don't think I know anybody who doesn't like Shawshank that watched it. Because yeah. even if like, I knew the ending, but even then, it's still incredible to watch it play out because it's just done so, so well. And I've never read the book. Have you read it? No, no. This short story, I think, which is probably for Stephen King, it's like a normal size book for every other author <laughs> out there. But I think it's one of his short stories. And yeah, it's incredible. It's, it's um, yeah, excellent pick. Not a Fellini, not a Kurosawa. Yes. Well done. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I will disappoint you soon enough. Uh, but let's, let's move on to our next clip, which is from uh, another friend of the show, Alex Watson. Hi, Dakota and Rachel. Uh, happy 200th episode. I really love this podcast. Uh, the movie I'm going to be um, championing today is Black Narcissus by Powell and Pressburger, because mm. this movie just really blew my world wide open. Because I, it was the first time I really wanted to study a movie after seeing it. And I really love how this movie deals with like the test of faith of the nuns, how it focuses on the color red to represent uh, and sexuality and desire and also just how it talks about things like hysteria and really how one's faith is tested Powell and Pressburg always made movies that were really thought-provoking but this just expanded my film world in ways I didn't know were possible so if anyone asks me what movie changed my world I will always say Black Narcissus thank you very much guys I hope here's the next 200 also a throwback to the last episode where mm-hmm. Bill said that he was disappointed that there wasn't, we didn't do a genre of horny nun movies um, <laughs> because he, he adores this movie. <laughs> um, I haven't seen it. I've always wanted to, and I haven't seen it. Have you seen this one? I haven't seen it either. It's one of those that's literally on my list of like, you need to go watch it because as Alex said, like everybody who watches it goes, it just blows your mind. Like it's, yeah, it's an, an incredible movie that, it just kind of takes you to different places that maybe your brain's never really gone there before. Like your brain's never really contorted to that way yet. Um, so yeah, it's, it's on, I mean, we should probably watch it now that it's been like two weeks in a row on the show that that's uh, the movies come up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so way to go, Alex, for out bougieing me. <laughs> what is your pick, Rachel? All right. So my next one is I'm kind of moving through my life here of the childhood to preteen years. And then this is my, a movie that I look fondly back for high school slash university slash just new graduate kind of thing. And it's super bad, which came out in 07. It was Greg Matola. Uh, it was a Judd, a Judd Apatow movie. And it's got the distinction now of being the movie that started 
the careers of Michael Sarah, Jonah Hill, Emma Stone. Am I forgetting anyone? I think it's the three of them. Oh, uh, I was going to say McLovin or Christopher Mintz Plass. Christopher Mintz Plass, yeah. Yeah. Um, and it was kind of a movie that came out in a group of the Judd Apatowian type films. So it was like the Knocked Up, the Forgetting Sarah Marshall's, like the you know 40 Year Old Virgin, that kind of humor. And that was like the really popular thing in the early 2000s. The way that I saw it, which I always remembered the next on like the Monday following opening weekend for Superbad, um, was I was listening to 680 News in the car and they were talking about the movie box office and how this was a movie that it cleaned up at the box office, but no one knew anybody who was in it. Nobody was a star. It wasn't, it wasn't carried by a big name, but it was also the fact that there was literally nothing at the movie theater that weekend other than Superbad. Um and the reason that I went to go watch it was because back then, myself and uh, my group, a group of us from high school, we had like a very, very tight friendship group in high school that carried on through university and, and later into our 20s. Um, we all went to a movie every single Tuesday. And it, that was because it was cheap nights and we were students. So obviously we were looking for cheap nights. Um, and so we would literally go to watch anything and everything on the summers when we were home from you, when a bunch of us were home from, from university or from college. Um, we would all get together Tuesday nights, go to Kelsey's, then go to the Morningside theater and watch a movie for like five bucks. And I would pick up on scene points cause I was the one who booked everybody's ticket nice. cause I wanted the scene points. I know it was great back then. It was a really good deal back then. Yeah. Um, no kidding. but I remember watching it and it was like, the movie theater was packed with kids about our age. And it was the funniest thing in the world because we t often talk about like theater experiences, especially in the last couple of years when it kind of looked like, you know, movie theaters might be dying off. Um, that experience of sitting in a movie theater, laughing with a, like a packed crowd of people when it's really rowdy and it's really raucous. There's nothing better than that, as far as I'm concerned, when you're in a movie theater. And I think Top Gun, kind of the the newest Top Gun that came out, has had that experience on people um, effect on people as well. Not necessarily comedy, but just like awe, like well, like holy shit, like look at all these fighter jets and all over the place. Um, but for me, Superbad was always the movie that I remembered watching because we watched a lot of movies over those summers. Like I said, we went every single week, and but Superbad's the one that I always think about the most when I think of that time. And we would like after the movie would hang out in the parking lot and talk about the movie till like two, three AM and we're just sitting in the morning side parking lot um for hours and then we would go home. But it was it's like it's such a like a carefree time, I think, when you're in your twenties. Uh we don't really have any responsibilities. We have a little bit of money because we're some of us are working in the summertime, so it's like you do get to do and we and we can all drive, so it's like it's kinda cool. Like you have a little bit of freedom, little thing. Um, but I always look really fondly back on that time because as life goes, we're not all as close as we all used to be. And for me, Superbad is the movie that just one makes me think of being young and kind of very, very super carefree and having a great group of friends to share that time with. Um, but also from a movie perspective, looking back, the idea that there were no expectations for this movie and it was hilarious. But I think now if you were to watch it, because it's been hyped up so much, Superbad's probably not as funny as you would expect it to be, which I think is a bit of a shame for people watching it. Um, and also just like really putting um, the, the, the point on that, 
you know, when you watch a movie in a movie theater with a bunch of people who are all really into it, that elevates a film um, beyond just watching it at home by yourself. So yeah, super bad for me is that, is that movie. Fantastic pick. It's funny, just before uh, we start recording, I was watching a YouTube video uh, breaking down that era of Judd Apatow <laughs> and like what the what the world was like comedy wise. Yeah. So it's very interesting that that's your pick. It's so good. I remember I remember seeing it in theaters too, I believe, and just that era of the R rated comedies mm-hmm. were so good. You know, stuff like that and Wedding Crashers and Super Troopers and Talladega Nights and I, I can't even list them all. Like they, they were just like it was so it was it was just such a great era for comedy. And like now you watch some of them, and they're like, ooh, a lot of these jokes don't really hold up anymore. <laughs> um which is, you know, obviously a bit of a shame, but just remembering that era fondly. It's it's so it's it's like everyone, you know, you think back to the comedies of your youth and you watch them now, and they're like, oh, it's not as funny as I remember it. But back when it came out, you know, it was the most biting edge of your seat world changing comedy you've ever heard. And and super bad was definitely up there as just about being the funniest thing I had ever seen in my life. And it took quite a bit to top. I don't think it was until like bridesmaids that like a Mm. movie topped that for laughs per minute, basically. And we were the perfect age for that too. Cause that humor is really directed towards people in their early twenties to mid Mm twenties. Like it's not, it's not the most sophisticated, clever, mature humor that's out there but it just like it really works for when you're a particular age um and when you're going to watch it at like 10 30 at night for five bucks yeah it you can't really beat that experience and it like it makes me a bit sad that like i don't think i don't know if if well obviously for because of the last couple of years like 20 somethings don't really have the same experience um that we all had when we were that age which is which is too bad but yeah it's it's a movie i look back on very very fondly and just like that entire kind of $5 Tuesdays. And then it came with it's, like, I think Toonie Tuesdays at KFC as well, just to add that yeah. on. It uh, it also, I feel like it's one of the very few movies that was able to accurately depict the way young people dressed because <laughs> most contemporary yeah. movies that were coming out at that time, you know, weren't being like, Hey, what, what are they, what are the kids actually wearing? Just have them wear that. It was, you know, it was nice clothes or things like that, which not to say people didn't dress nicely, but the casual look from yeah. kids, young people, that was one of the few movies that actually got it right. It seems like they, they really just was like, Hey, Michael, Sarah, uh, just bring whatever, whatever clothes you have. Jonah Hill, bring your own clothes. Like that, that's mm-hmm. what you guys are going to wear. Makes me think of, um, mean girls. Cause I know mean girls, sometimes they dressed a little bit, probably nicer than we would have, um, actually mm-hmm. at that time. But I saw a clip of the, when Regina gets hit by the bus and I see her going out and she's got this, I don't even know what the handbag is called, but every single girl, we all had one. And it was the, the boot cut jeans that were kind of flared mm. out. And it just like cracked me up laughing. So I was like, yeah, we did dress like that. And we thought we were really, really stylish. <laughs> and yeah. now when I look at it, it's like, wow, that did not age very well. It doesn't look great, does it? But you're right. Like, like skirts bad. over top of jeans for girls. Yeah, I don't, like I don't know why, why, why we did those things. And like lay, guys like <laughs> layered polos, like yeah. three polos and popped the collar all the time. And it was, it was a funny, funny little period of time. Um, yeah. But yeah, and, and you're right though. Like the, the way that Superbad kind of nailed the way that it was, 
the way that teenagers talk to each other too. Like it was, it's mm-hmm. like, it does have that. Um, and I mean, Michael Sarah's very awkwardness, uh, awkward bit like that he always uses in his movies comes across really well. Cause it's, it's the boy that doesn't really know how to talk to girls. He like punches them in the boob by accident. It's funny. <laughs> it's a good movie. All right. So my pick, uh, this is back to when uh, you laugh at me for my choices. Uh, and it's going to be 12 Angry Men. Of course it is. We <laughs> go from super is. bad of punching boobs to 12 Angry Men. Yes. Um, so my timeline is a little fuzzy on the first time I watched this. I can't remember how old I was. I was probably in high school. I definitely was on college. I'd already seen it by then. And I, I imagine I had not watched it before high school. So it's basically sometime between 2004 and 2007, I likely saw this. But, uh, you know, a lot of kids sort of grow up with this idea that any media made before they were born means that it's old and outdated and uncool. And it's not to say that I didn't watch older movies, like obviously stuff like uh, It's a Wonderful Life and Wizard of Oz and, and stuff like that that you just kind of grow up with. It's ubiquitous that it, it was aired on TV every year, especially Christmas movies where it's like, oh, you know what five Christmas movies are going to play? It would be like Miracle on 34th Street and It's a Wonderful Life and all that sort of stuff. You sort of grow up with that. But for some reason, you know, outside of whatever is deemed, you know, the classics and everyone grew up with, if it came before us, it was like, oh, no, that's not for me. That's that's for my parents. That's for my grandparents. That's the old people's <laughs> stuff. I don't like that. And it's, it doesn't even have to be movies. It could be also like music and things like that. It's not until you kind of like open your mind and be like, you know what? I am going to be open and, and see what this movie has to say and all this sort of stuff. But it was the simplicity of the way the story is told while also having the emotional heft it has by forcing the viewers to just think for a moment and, and not let your surface level thoughts win out was a real game changer for me because so often movies that you watch, the the media that you consume, it tells you how to feel, tells you how to think. This is what needs to happen. We're going to play music nice and hard so you know exactly what emotion you need to be feeling right now. And with 12 Angry Men, you know, the movie starts, you get these 12 jurors that get in a room and they're like, oh yeah, the kid's guilty, right? And they're like, yeah, yeah, the kid's guilty. I got a baseball game I got to go to. Yeah, let's get out of here. That's a nice open and shut case. And then you got one guy that's like, yeah, but maybe not. Like, well, what's wrong with you? It's like, well, let's just talk about it for a minute. Let, you know, we don't have to do anything. Let's let's just talk about it. And so you start talking about it and you're like, okay, well, yeah, I guess you have a bit of a point. Okay. We'll talk about a bit more. You know what? I'm kind of feeling like I'm being convinced by you right now. Okay. You know, maybe it's not such an open and shut case. There's actually some stuff that we really need to think about. And the more the movie goes on, the more you just kind of feel like in life, you really kind of have to start thinking a little bit deeper about everything. You can't just be like, oh yeah, this is what it is. That's what I'm deciding. I'm never going to change my mind. I'm never going to think critically about anything. And having a movie that's like, let's slow things down and think for a second was a real eye opener for me. So I make fun of you for going the highbrow, but you said you didn't watch 12 Angry Men till high school. I think so. Yeah. I definitely have you beat then. I watched it in grade six. (laughs) Oh, wow. Because, again, I don't know, I didn't plan for Mr. Hayes to come up so much. Uh, But, (laughs) again, like, I remember we did the play. Like, we, I think, I don't know if we acted out the play or, like, we just read it in class. I remember we read the play and then Mr. Hayes was like, we're going to watch the movie. And he gave us the, and he said, oh, there's, like, a newer version that I think must have just come around at that time. Because I think that was... 
when was the newer version? I think 97 was when the newer newish one at the yeah, time came out. Something like that. Um, but he was like, so there's a new one. He goes, but I really think we should watch this one. It's from the fifties. And he goes, it's in black and white. Um, and he goes, how many of you have seen a black and white movie? And then we watched it in, in class. And like, and I remember we just talked about, and we had to like write reports about it. Like we talked about the movie. We talked about the story. Um, so actually for as much as I make fun of you, 12 Angry Men is a story slash movie and a play as well that I saw in Broadway that um, like a few years ago, actually, um, that actually does hold a lot of meaning for me as well, just because it kept coming up um, so often throughout my life. And it started in grade six because of Mr. Hayes. Thanks, Mr. Hayes. I never I didn't think I'd be <laughs> talking about it. I haven't said Mr. Hayes since I was probably in grade eight. So there you go. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah, I know. I know Steph had seen the play first, I believe, and then watched mm. the movie afterwards. And I've actually never seen the play version of it's it. It's great. It's amazing. Like, I mean, it's because it's such a simple, like, it's one set, you know, it's just literally 12 people just chatting with each other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it it makes for really good because it's so compelling. Like, we talked about with your other pick, Shawshank Redemption, just like the storytelling is incredible. But like the storytelling in 12 Angry Men, it's it's very simple. But it's incredibly effective. Like, and you don't think that sitting around listening to 12 jurors would be interesting, especially when you're 12 years old and your teacher's telling you this is going to be great. But then it raises up a lot of things that as you get older as well, and you think about it more, like it talks about morality and, you know, um, um, ethics and justice and those kind of concepts. Uh, and it's, yeah, it's very, it's very, very fascinating. And it's a great story, um, whether it's a play, a, a book, I guess it's not a book. It's like the book, the book is the play. Um, but yeah. yeah, you could read it or you could watch it. You could watch the movie. Um, I don't think I've seen the 97 version though, actually. I think who is Jack Lemons in that, I think. I think so. Yeah. yeah He's not the lead, but he, he is one of the jurors. Yeah. Great pick though. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> I know you often make fun of my picks, but more often than not, you agree with them. I do. Yeah, they're very good. All right, so now we're going to get to our fourth clip, and that is from Callum McNabb of Scaretroducing. Hello, Callum from Scaretroducing here, and before I get to the film that made me, I just want to wish a massive congratulations to Contras and for getting to 200 episodes. You guys are genuinely one of my favorite podcasts out there on any subject whatsoever, so long may it continue. And thank you for letting me be even a tiny small part of that journey. Now, the movie that made me... There are so many options I could have gone for, but the one I've decided to go for is a movie from my childhood that I haven't seen in probably 20 years, if not more. And that is 1986's Flight of the Navigator. It was a VHS we had at home and I would just watch it over and over and over again with my dad and my brother. And I can't wait to find it somewhere on streaming and watch it in the coming days and weeks and see if if the nostalgia holds up. If you haven't seen it, if you haven't heard of it, check it out. It's an 80s classic, apparently. Again, this is all just nostalgia in my head. I have not seen this since I was about eight years old, if not younger. So I hope to God that it holds up. That's the movie that made me. That's the one I'm going for. Thanks again, and good luck with the future. So your thoughts on that pick there? Never even heard of it. <laughs> I've never even heard of it. It have is you one seen it? I haven't seen. Yeah. I have not seen it. No, but I am familiar with it. Wow, I'm gonna have to watch that. It made it sound cool. I like. I hope. I hope it 
holds up in when he watches it. I'll have to, I'll have to ask him. Um, I love movies like that though, that like leave an imprint on you when you're a kid and you kind of almost a little scared to watch it again. Cause you just want to make sure it doesn't suck. Like it, like you did, it wasn't just your brain thinking cause you're just a child or whatever. Um, no, I never heard of it though. What's it about? <laughs> Uh, the IMDb plot description says, In 1978, a boy travels eight years into the future and has an adventure with an intelligent, wisecracking alien ship. That's fantastic. That is so 80s, too. <laughs> that's such a... Yes. What an 80s premise that is. Oh, that's amazing. I'll have to watch that. Which, I'll definitely I'll have to track it, it down. It features uh, Paul Rubens, Veronica Cartwright, and Sarah Jessica Parker in roles. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. It's a Disney movie, by the way. Of course it is. I have to watch it though. Yeah. Disney dominate. I mean, they they continue to dominate today, but they they certainly dominated our childhood too. All right. So, what is your next pick then, Rachel? Um. Oh, funny enough, it is a Disney Pixar pick. Um, it is a very recent one, but it's Soul, which came out just a couple of years ago. And the reason I picked this is. I only started doing this kind of film critic stuff um, truly like a couple years ago. I only did it last year was like a first full year of doing it. And even then it was kind of casual. It's just something I fell into during lockdown. Had, there was a lot of time as everybody I'm sure can remember. And I was one of those very lucky people where I was a bit bored because there was just a lot of time and not much to do. So I started to, I was going to pick tenant for this spot actually, because Tenet and Palm Springs were the first two reviews I ever wrote on my website. And they were just out of kind of something to do. Like, I just thought, oh, like, that seems like something fun to do. Like, write about movies. I like movies. I like writing. So why not put them together? And and then it just kind of snowballed into something that's obviously a lot bigger today than I had ever intended it to be back in 20, the fall, like the the summer to fall of 2020. Like I, I didn't think it was going to be like that. And then I watched soul and soul. I've, I think it was my number one pick from my favorite movie that year. And it just came at like right at the right time. I remember it was released on December 31st, 2020. And I watched it on January 1st. Um, And it was just, it's like about a man who never really kind of fulfilled what he wanted to do in life. And then, uh, he never got chances and then kind of through fun Pixar Disney stuff, he does get a second chance and he goes and he plays at this jazz club with this band that he thinks, you know, this is everything that he ever wanted. And then after the performance, they come out of the club and he just goes to them like, all right, so what now? And they just go, oh, we just do it again tomorrow. Um, <laughs> and there's this kind of hollow feeling that I feel like a lot of us can, can commiserate with this idea that like, you're focused on one particular thing for a really long time. And that's usually about a career. Like you think this is what I'm going to do for a living and you work really hard towards it. And then you get there and then you're just like, huh? So that's, that's it. Huh? Like that's all it is. And this is what it's going to be. And then it just feels really unfulfilling. And that was me for a long time with um, my actual day job and like my actual career that I still do. And not to say that I don't enjoy it. I do. I do. I do like what I do. And I'm, you know, proud of all the work that I put into getting there. But it just it didn't it didn't have that feeling of fulfillment or satisfaction that I was kind of looking for. And I suppose lockdown, COVID in general, the last couple of years, I think a lot of us have been in those that headspace of just not 
really feeling like what you're doing is what you should be doing, like what that's not your best time spent. And so when this movie stuff kind of came around, I remember thinking it was just for fun. And then as it kind of built into something a little bit more, um, it's like something I took a little bit more seriously and I take it quite seriously now. And Soul was just this movie that came at the right time that just kind of signaled this, um, like, go and do it. Like, life is short. If there's something that you really, really want to do, even if it seems really bizarre, even if it seems like you're wasting time and effort that you put into something else, still pursue it and still try it because it might be something that is a kind of a surprising twist in in your life that you never expected to come, which definitely this has all been for me. So that's why I picked Soul. And uh, it's still very meaningful for me today. That's a that's a fantastic pick. And I really like that. Um, my last pick is going to be somewhat similar to the your reasoning because of that. Nice. Uh, but I'll hold off on that for now. But uh, yeah, that's a that's a great one. And, and I do really agree that I think Soul, I know some people weren't, weren't fully on board with it, but if you were, it kind of hit that sweet uh, melancholic spot of you being like, what is my life yeah. exactly? <laughs> it's funny because like, obviously they didn't plan for it to come out during a pandemic when everyone's like stuck inside at home, right? Like they never, nobody could have foreseen that this was going to happen, but it ends up being a movie that like depending, it's not for kids, like it is an animated movie, but I, I wouldn't say it's necessarily for children. Um, but it is one that's like, it just kind of hits you and it hit, I think the world at a, a right time, which is not credit to Disney. It was just credit to a silly pandemic that we were all dealing with. It's also a really good movie, like animated animation speaking. It's beautiful. Like it looks incredible. And I, I was always a bit disheartened by the fact that it didn't get the same, um, hype that like Encanto and, I don't know what what are some of the other ones like Frozen and those ones got because I I really really love Soul. I think it's it's such a great movie. Well, excellent choice. My number 4 pick is Pan's Labyrinth. Mm, nice. Yeah. So, while I had seen movies not in English before, this was the first time I remember going out of my way to see a non-English movie in theaters. I went with my two best friends from high school, Max and Sebastian. And despite being absolutely terrified by it, it was one of the most moving films I had ever seen. It was just this idea of, you know, me and my buddies going and be like, hey, we know we're going to go see something special right now and unique and something, you know, for grownups. It's not a kid's movie sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And that was, it was going to be some interesting moment for us and the three of us went and we all absolutely loved it and just buzzing in our seats and talking about it afterwards and all that sort of stuff and i got so invested with it i was one of the first times i I remember actually paying attention to who was nominated at the oscars outside of like best picture and when uh pants labyrinth ended up losing best foreign language film i was absolutely crushed i was so angry i was like how could they get this wrong this is this is one of the best movies ever it was probably my favorite movie of the year i was like so furious with it and up losing to a movie called the lives of others it's a german movie and i watched that maybe a year or two later and i was like oh yeah this movie (laughs) is also really really amazing and i don't know if it deserved to win. It probably would be, you know, literally inches between the two of them, but it was a deserving winner nonetheless. Pan's Labyrinth, I came to that very late. I didn't watch in theaters. I would love to see it in theaters, though. I, I still have not ever seen it in cinema. I think I watched it with 
a guy I was dating at the time on a laptop, <laughs> which is not the best way, but it's so enthralling. Like you really get into it and it's you guys, I can't remember if it was you or Bill in the last episode. One of you said something about like, it's a movie that you like, you lose, you lose your sense of time. Like you just kind of there and you don't think about like time just kind of escapes you at that moment. And I remember feeling oh, yeah. that with Pan's Labyrinth, like you just kind of, I just kind of got lost into it. And when it was done, I'm like, Oh my, I want to watch that again. Like it's one of those movies that you want to watch again right after it's done. And it's incredible. Yeah. And, and I, I'm pretty sure I, like, I wouldn't call it a, a horror movie, but Guillermo del Toro definitely has made several horror movies and mm-hmm. has a lot of horror sensibilities. And so it was probably the scariest movie I'd ever seen in theaters <laughs> at that point. And like, there, there's a few scenes in there. They're quite yeah. traumatizing. Like when uh, he like slices open the guy's mouth and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And the different executions that happen on screen and the final scene where the guy gets his like head bashed in all that sort of stuff just like very traumatizing it is i mean i don't know if del toro even in his tamer movies they still they still have a a sense of horror in them at the very minimum Mm -hmm. right like yeah you can feel horrific tension as it were all right so we're going to play the last clip from uh, a friend of the show and this is from thomas stoneham judge Released during a wave of found footage horror films, including Record, Paranormal Activity, and Quarantine, the movie that made me that I want to discuss is Cloverfield, a found footage film about a group of friends trying to survive a high-profile monster attack in Manhattan. Cloverfield is exactly what I wanted out of a horror monster experience, an opportunity to be dropped into a chaotic scenario where the audience doesn't know anything more than the characters do. The reason I'm choosing Cloverfield to spotlight as a movie that made me isn't just because of how much I loved the theatrical experience, but it also has to do with the viral marketing campaign that led up to the film's release. Now, I know Blair Witch Project did a similar thing in 1999, but 2008 meant the internet was more developed, social media was more prevalent, and I was at a more appropriate age to engage with a complex online game. For months, I got to collaborate with others via movie website forums to decode social media posts, hack related websites, and piece together a pre-film narrative featuring viral tie-ins that span across a J.J. Abrams cinematic universe before Marvel popularized the concept of a cinematic universe. I can't say every Cloverfield film gets it right. In my book, the anthology is two for three. But one thing all three films are impeccable at executing is their unorthodox marketing strategies. And as a marketing professional now, I appreciate that. I mean, seriously, as far as the first Cloverfield film goes, I love that movie. And I just will never forget how fascinated I was with the Slusho drink or how iconic that film's 11808 release date became. I didn't see Cloverfield in theaters. It wasn't until several years after when I was working retail and it was one of my other manager's uh, favorite movies. And she's like, oh, you have to watch this. So she lent it to me and I watched it because at that point I was very adamant. I don't watch horror movies, uh, but she had lent it to me and uh, I watched it. And I was like, oh yeah, it's, it's all right. I wasn't fully on board with it. And I rewatched it recently. It's, it's only so, so, uh, but 10 Cloverfield Lane is absolutely incredible. But I do remember the viral campaign behind it and it was so unique and it was just sort of something you had to be there for. Yeah, I remember it too. And it was, it did, re- like, um, Thomas brought it up, but it reminded me a lot of the Blair Witch one, which, which, which the two of them are interesting to kind of compare because 
as Thomas said, like you're talking about one era where the internet is much more accessible and um, another time where it's very, very analog. And I'm not sure which one is more impressive, not to say that we're even pitting them against each other for that reason, but um, it's obviously much more difficult in 08 and today to pull something like that off because these days there's just so much information out there and people are skeptical too, right? Like, so it, it's a lot, it's really interesting to see um, or to think back on those marketing campaigns and like how they kind of changed. But yeah, I love it. I, I didn't watch it in theaters either. I think I watched it years and years later. Um, like to the point, probably not that long ago that I saw it. I, I like them. I, I like most of the Cloverfield movies, actually. I think that they're quite fun. Cloverfield Lane, I agree, I think is probably the strongest one, but yeah, I really enjoyed um, that series of movies. And I mean, to t- Thomas's point of it being a connected universe, which we hadn't really seen um, unless you were a fan of like the, the old monster movies from, from way back when, which Dakota, I'm sure you were, but majority of people <laughs> were not um, or not that they weren't a fan of it. They just didn't know about it. So yeah, it's, um, it's probably a, a series of movies that doesn't get enough credit today. I don't think for what they did and like how innovative they were for the time. Yeah, that, that is very, very true. What is your final pick, Rachel? So for my final pick, I'm kind of looping back around to uh, a movie that I adored as a child and I continue to adore, adore as an adult. And that's the sound of music. My parents bought the double VHS because it came in a double tape. Um, and I remember watching it uh, at home, like the first one. And then my parents were making me go to bed after the first tape was done because it was getting kind of late. And I was really upset with them for making me do that. So I remember taking both tapes up to my room and hiding them in my dresser so that nobody could watch it. <laughs> I was a real brat <laughs> as a child and it's, but it's a movie that um, it reminds me a lot of being a kid. It's a movie that it's such a, like a classic family film that, I mean, it's from 1965 and to this day you will see children will watch it and fall in love with it in a kind of a way that maybe you don't expect kids to fall in love with a movie from the sixties. And it is very, overly sweet and saccharine like it is that kind of movie but it will forever remind me of my parents because they always talk about how they watched it when they were young and in uh in hong kong they watched it there and never in a million years thought that they would have a daughter like so many years later who would fall in love with the movie i've seen it like every year when they put it for christmas i always watch it every single year um and it's it's a movie that it's somehow like in me all the time, if that makes sense. Like, it's just one that I can tell you every, like every line from the film, I could reenact the whole thing by myself, the sound of music. It's just a movie that it it connects me a lot to my family, but it's also just one that I'm very impressed from it because like I said, like there are not that many movies that you could say they're like classic family movies that are still, I wouldn't say relevant, but they're prevalent today. Like they're ones that, it doesn't matter who you are, you will watch it and you will love it because it is a sweet movie. And there's not that it, it's not like the deepest movie. It does involve Nazis at some point, but like, you know, whatever. And and Christopher Plummer and Julie Andrews are two people who like I absolutely adore. 
Um, and I saw Julie Andrews in uh, a one woman show a few years ago, uh, many years ago now, actually. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a movie that just kind of stayed with me throughout my entire life. And I'm sure will continue um, for the rest of my life. Excellent choice. And uh, I feel bad because I don't really like sound of music. How dare you? <laughs> Is it because it's too uh, sweet? Yeah. Like it's too like, you know, like kind of... <sighs> I don't I don't know exactly what it is. I'm not a I'm not a big musical fan. Mm. I think it's just a little too cheesy. Yeah. I can so, see that. But there's yeah. just something about it that I feel like it just it's like obviously it stood the test of time. Like it's one of those that mm-hmm. it's not anything deep, but it's just a like a nice movie. And for me it's it's the one movie that like if you ask me like kind of desert island type movie, I probably would pick Sound of Music. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, like Bill said in the last episode, uh, not really here to, to crap on any picks because you know <laughs> movies are important to people for different reasons. And so uh, I, I respect your pick of The Sound of Music. What's your last pick going to be? Uh, the Italian film The Great Beauty. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I had gotten into uh, reviewing concerts and albums and... And, uh, and this was post-college and, you know, the, the early 2010s. And I feel like I gotten to be a decent enough writer. It, you know, it's a, it's, it's a tough skill to, to kind of get into. I never really considered myself uh, a good writer when I was in school. I nearly failed English almost every year because I was a terrible essay writer. I couldn't analyze things for shit. It was it was all very difficult for me for some reason, and it sort of maybe came down to I just wasn't really interested in the subject matter. And so it wasn't until I saw The Great Beauty in theaters when it came out back in, in 2013 that uh, I had to rush home and write a review of that movie. I, I don't know if it was the, the first movie I reviewed, but it was definitely one of the first. The other ones probably were I was asked to do it or something like that. But this was – I got out of the theater and, and Steph and I were talking about it and I was just like buzzing with ideas of this means this and this means this and this must mean that. And, and what does all this mean? How does it all connect? And why am I feeling so many things, especially considering – Paulo Sorrentino's movies aren't really plot heavy. You know, you're just kind of going from uh, moment to moment experiencing new things and being sort of surprised by them and wondering how it all connects to someone's life. You know, if anyone watched Hand of God from this past year, we'll kind of realize that plot isn't really something he's overly concerned with in the end. Uh, But yeah, this was... I, I. this was the first one that I, I had to write a review about. I got home that night. It was it was an evening screening, so I probably got home. It was already like nine ten o'clock. I imagine it was maybe a work night or something like that. And I sat down and I probably poured out two thousand words on this movie, which is hilarious because the website I was writing for, Live in Limbo, everyone else when they would do reviews, it would be you know about three four hundred words, and yet when I would do a review, it would be you know fifteen hundred two thousand words. It was just, I, I was always flabbergasted. I was like, how, were you not feeling things? Like, what, how can you not <laughs> write more? And here I am writing my first movie review or one of my first movie reviews and just 2,000 words spits out of me. And it was basically a fully formed review in my head. And I never done anything like that before. And very rarely since have I like been able to have such a concise opinion already in my head, already fully formed that I'm able to just basically transcribe it from what I'm feeling inside my head. 
I can say I haven't seen it. Um, I do love how much you love it, though. I think that that's amazing that you could come up like, you know, what what you talked about of, of like in school, how you didn't excel or like you thought you didn't excel in writing and in English class and things like that. But then like once you realize actually it's just the content of it. And then, you know, so many years later, you're able to write a 2000 word essay with ease when probably if you asked like grade nine Dakota, he would tell you you're crazy. You're not going to be able to do something like that. Um, So I think that's amazing. And I think any movie or anything in general that can kind of like bring out that kind of passion in somebody is um, wonderful. And I should probably watch that movie. It's really good. I, you know, I'll link to the review in the show notes. I uh, I transported uh, the few movie reviews I did for, for Live in Limbo onto the ContraZoom website. So I'll, I'll link to it there. So that way I get the clicks. Uh, and sorry, Sean, I know you don't listen to this, but uh, sorry, Sean, you won't get the clicks. <laughs> as long as you're not being petty about it. Well, that's that's it. Those are those are our five picks. I want to thank all of our friends for sending in their choices. Uh, make sure you listen to Matthew Simpson's podcast, Awesome Friday, Callum McNabb's podcast, Scaretroducing, and watch Thomas Stoneham Judge's YouTube channel for real, and also read his reviews. Uh, for, this is forreal.com. I'll link to all that in the show notes. Also, a huge thank you to Alex Watson and Brody Cottenham for sending in their choices as well. This was a lot of fun, and and happy 200 episodes. Rachel, I know you haven't been here for the whole time, but but happy 200 to you. Happy 200 to you, too. I already said at the top, but congratulations. It genuinely is such like a an achievement. I've said it to you before, I think. I don't know if I've said it on air but like i've said it to you before that i find you know the fact that you've done it so long on your own and like like had different hosts and things like that like it's commendable to kind of keep with it because i know for me if i were you i probably would have stopped doing it a while ago just because i don't have like the persistence to kind of continue on with something um if not to say like if there's something like roadblocks or anything like that but um yeah, I, I feel like it's impressive that you've kind of kept with it for so long, and I'm happy to be um, a part of it now. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Uh, but where can people find you and your work? You can go to rachelkh.com, and I'm on Twitter at underscore rachelkh. Also, happy birthday to you, Dakota. Get that in oh, there. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yes, by the hand. time this comes out... <laughs> Uh, my birthday would have been passed at the time of this recording. It has not yet passed. Uh, so it's in this weird limbo period. So I retroactively thank you very much. And I will say happy birthday again on your actual birthday. <laughs> thank you. Uh, what, uh, have you, uh, have you published anything recently that you want to promote here? Ooh, uh, let me think. I've got, uh, oh, we're going to do a, are we doing that? I think we are. So I have the yes. <laughs> um, festival covered from the Toronto Japanese Film Festival. Um, and I think the last couple of reviews I did, I did one on Marcel the Shell with Shoes On, which is a very, very cute movie. And Mr. Malcolm's List, which is like a Regency rom-com type movie. So both all those things are on that shelf. Um, yeah. And those are kind of the new things that I have up on my site. Nice. Okay. Well, you can follow this show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at ContraZoomPod. Let us know what movies made you by sending an email to ContraZoomPod at gmail.com. Thank you to Eric and Kevin Smale for the theme music and to Stephanie Pryor for the logo design. 
If you like to listen to podcasts on YouTube, we do post all episodes there as well. Thanks for checking us out. Mm-hmm.